What does your birthplace mean to you? Is it the centre of your identity? Or can your birthplace just simply be your birthplace and your home be where your ancestors and your bloodline are from? Which of these places would be your world? What would you do for your home? What would you do for your people? It is the life of a woman born in Scotland to Irish immigrants which answers these questions for us. This is her story. In 1893, in a town called Coatbridge, east of Glasgow, a woman was born. Her name, Margaret Skinner. Her parents were Irish immigrants who had left Ireland in the hope of being able to build a better life for themselves and their family. Margaret was encouraged by her parents to better herself in Scotland and do things which were not accessible to the majority of the Irish back home. One of these things being to go and get an education. They had visions that Margaret's life would be significantly easier than their own. She diligently obliged and showed she was a more than capable student. In university, she trained as a teacher and qualified to teach maths. Education was not her only interest, however. Her father, being a proud Monaghan man, would often bring her back to Ireland to meet with family and keep close to her roots in Ireland. She loved these trips, spending weeks in the summer with cousins playing games from sunrise to sunset. It was here she began to understand how oppression of others worked. She saw how she had an abundance of rights in Scotland compared to her family still in Ireland. She began to become politicised. As she was in Scotland, she felt that there was little she could do in order to help the Irish at home. She focused her efforts on other things she could change in her own life. She joined the suffragette movement in the UK, seeking the right for women to vote. She became an active member of the Women's Social and Political Union in Scotland. She campaigned for this throughout the UK, which would have included Ireland at the time. In the 19th century and early 20th century, there was a certain level of anti-Irish sentiment in some parts of Scotland. This was largely due to the successful plantation of Ulster, a plan by the British establishment to move Scottish people to the northeast of Ireland and remove the Irish from this land. This group would be later known as the Ulster Scots. Whilst Ireland and Scotland share a very rich history and Celtic traditions, as well as once sharing a land and sea kingdom known as Dalriata, those in Scotland with the Presbyterian persuasion would have been very anti-Catholic Irish. This is highlighted by the song sung today by Glasgow Rangers fans called The Famine Song which asks, now the famine is over, why don't the Irish leave? Coatbridge itself became a hub for the Irish, and in the 19th century, 36% of the population was Irish-born, predominantly Catholic. Throughout the century, there are countless reports of riots and fights between the Catholic and Protestant communities in the town. The town did eventually become a sanctuary for the Irish. Able to live their lives in peace after experiencing famine and war in their homeland throughout the century, there was such an acceptance for the Irish in the town that during the 19th century, despite being a wealthy Protestant family, a family known as the Bairds donated a site on Main Street to the Irish community where they built St. Patrick's Catholic Church. Throughout the 19th and 20th century, the town itself was known as Little Ireland by the locals. The Irish influence on the town can still be seen today as 60% of the town's population are of Irish descent and 28% of them have Irish surnames. In 2006, it was voted the least Scottish town in Scotland due to the Irish influence there. The Irish community, however, stayed loyal to their home whilst in Coatbridge. 
As many of the residents had left Ireland under hardship, they longed to be able to do something to improve conditions still left in the old country for their people suffering under oppression. Coatbridge became home to a number of Irish Republican organisations. In the late 19th century, the town was home to the biggest Irish home rule organisation in Britain. In 1901, a Gaelic League branch was formed in the town. Two GA clubs sprung up in 1902 and a third one in 1912. By 1915, it was home to a large branch of Common Naman, the Irish women fighting for Irish freedom. Margaret, due to her visits to Ireland, had become very aware of the Republican movement in her home country. After enjoying the thrill of being a member of the suffragette movement and seeing the change a group working together can bring, she began looking for ways to help her home. She joined a rifle practice club in Scotland. This was set up to teach women how to shoot, should they ever have to, to defend Britain. Margaret joined as she believed, and as she later wrote in her own words, that the opportunity would soon come to defend her own country. She attended every week until she felt her shot would be unmatched by any soldier, man or woman. On one of her visits to Ireland, as the Republican movement had become aware of this Irish woman fighting for women's rights in Scotland, she was brought to meet the great Constance Markovitch. Markovitch told her of their struggle and how Common Amman was going to take part in any and all military activities of the Republican movement. She told her that Ireland had now had enough and for the first time the sun was going to shine on the Irish people as a free people but she would need Margaret's help. Unsure she was fully ready for military action, Margaret was apprehensive about being involved in any upcoming fight. That was until Markovitz took her to the Catholic regions in Dublin City. Here she saw unbearable poverty. She later wrote about this experience and the torment it had in her soul and how it removed all worries she had about fighting. She saw a greater cause than her own life. She wrote, I do not believe there is a worse place in the world than Dublin. The street I saw was hollow, full of sewage and refuse, and the buildings were as full as holes as if they'd been under shell fire. She returned to Coatsbridge and immediately joined Common Amman. Throughout 1915, as the Irish Revolution was being planned, Margaret made countless trips from Scotland to Ireland, smuggling bomb-making equipment to the rebels in Dublin. As she was a woman, she was never searched when getting onto the boats to travel, and she smuggled detonators, gunpowder and fuses across the Irish Sea. The detonators she kept in her tall hat, and the wires were wrapped around her body. She had to stay on deck for the entire journey, as if she was to bump off another passenger, she could detonate the bombs tied to her. She would also carry rifles across the sea, with the butt of the guns nestled under her ears, making it impossible to turn or bend over. She would stand for the entire four-hour boat trip with all this weight on her. She began making bombs in the Dublin mountains with other volunteers and would teach others how to do the same. She was responsible for a massive arsenal of explosives to arm the rebels with. Markovitz was very trusting of Margaret and asked her to join the rebels' efforts as a scout. Being a woman, she could move through the city quite easily. 
With the ability to move and her intellect, she was initially used as a scout throughout Dublin. Her role was to suss out the British barracks and discover ways which the rebels could either get weapons from them or attack them. She travelled back and forth between Scotland and Ireland with weapons and on Christmas 1915 she brought herself to the attention of those at the head of the rebellion. Whilst pretending to be lost, she entered through the gates of her British barracks. Here she discovered a building filled with gunpowder. When spotted, the guards walked her out and apologised to her in case they had frightened the poor helpless woman. Once out of sight, she ran to the external wall of the building which was adjacent to the street and marked an area which could be dug that was safe from view. This would be where they could place a bomb under the gunpowder and to use it to explode the entire barracks. She ran to tell James Connolly. Connolly did not want to bomb the barracks this way. He felt that with this much explosive power, it could destroy parts of the city and cost the lives of hundreds. He did state though. As World War I was unfolding in Europe, should conscription be brought to Ireland by the British, sending hundreds of thousands of Irish men to the front lines against their will, that this would be the first place they would strike back at the Empire. As Easter weekend 1916 approached, Margaret landed again in Dublin, intending to be an extra pair of hands throughout the Easter Rising. Her first role was to help place ammunition in Liberty Hall, and then, once the fighting was to begin, she was to be a dispatch rider for Michael Mallon. She was to pedal throughout the city, getting messages to and from Mallon to the other rebels. She was stationed in Stevens Green with other Common Naman members, the women fighting for Ireland. The women dug out parts of the green and bunkered in, thinking trench warfare was working in France and it must be a good tactic. As the British soldiers arrived on the scene, they were shocked to find women facing them with guns. Seeing the women in the trenches, they went to upper ground and went to the Shelburne Hotel. This made those in the trenches easy picking. Malin, seeing his garrison under severe pressure, grabbed Margaret by the arm and told her, get the message out, they are lambs facing the slaughter. She immediately jumped on her bike and pedalled as fast as she could with the volley of rifles all around her and bullets sparking off the ground. She was seen screaming with fear as she pedalled but never slowed down or went to hide. She got as far as Leeson Bridge where she spotted 16 men under gunfire. The road behind her was a straight run to Stevens Green where the men could join the others. She grabbed a rifle on the ground, bowed to one knee and began shooting at those that had the men pinned down. She saw those she pointed the rifle at fall to the ground after each time she pulled the trigger. She shouted, move or die, to the men as they scurried up the street towards the green. Seeing the road was blocked off, she too went backwards towards the green. She went with the 16 men to the Royal College of Surgeons. They too needed higher ground to get the pressure off those in the green. She took a position in an upstairs window and set her sight on the windows of the hotel. Again, with a steady hand, she picked off the British soldiers one by one across the way. She later stated herself, it was dark in there, full of smoke and the din of firing 
but it was good to be in the action. I could look across to the tops of the trees and see the British soldiers on the roof of the Shelburne. I could hear their shouting hail against the roof of our fortress. For in truth, this building was just that. More than once, I saw the man I aimed at fall. Nora Connolly, the daughter of James Connolly, stated that at this point, Margaret had now assumed full control over the Irish rebel snipers. When they had cleared what they could from the Shelburne, their focus moved to the other side of the green. Above University Church, on the Ivy Garden side, she saw a machine gun being set up. The rebels had not seen anything like this before. It was a weapon built for the war in Europe. They paused for a moment to see what it was, until it started and it began ripping trees to pieces and culling those in the trenches. It was being used to help the British soldiers retreat, as Margaret snipers had consumed control of the green. Every time she would take position to try and take the shooter down, she was met with a ferocious thunder of the gun peppering her opening. She was totally pinned down with her fellow snipers. They had to shuffle on their elbows and knees out of the building as it looked as though it would collapse on top of them. They made it out and had to weave across the street as the machine gun continued to torment them. She managed to get across the road to the side of the gun, moving down the street. She spotted a building which she could plant a bomb in to start a fire to take the gun down. She built a bomb at what she could muster from the other soldiers and ran towards houses on Harcourt Street. Councillor William Partridge smashed the glass door on the front of a shop that occupied the ground floor. He did it with the butt of his rifle and a flash followed it. The gun had discharged. Margaret rushed past him into the doorway of the shop, calling to the others to follow. As she turned back to the shop, behind her came a loud volley of gun firing and she fell towards the ground. The flash from the gun opening the door had signalled the British where the rebels were and they had opened fire on them. Margaret lay in a pool of blood on the floor. She was heard muttering, it's all over, and she began to drift off. Her eyes closed and her head fell back as she left out of sight. The other rebels laying around were checking themselves for wounds. Some lay screaming for help. Blood, glass and the destroyed shop lay all around them. Firing ambers lit the darkness as smoke filled the room. Those fell out in the street, who had taken cover from the bullets, looked across the street to see the smoke rising from where their comrades once stood. As the smoke lifted to the Irish sky, a dark shape took form near the doorway. The shape, blurry at first, began to take form. Margaret stumbled out of the building, dragging with her some rebels in a bad way. She fell onto the street. Back in the green, they could hear shouts for a medic. Margaret had taken three bullets, one in the right arm, one in her lower back, and one in her ribs. When the medics arrived, she tried to fight them off. The shell burned, she shouted, I have to take it down. She cried as she was rushed to a nearby safe house where injured rebels were being treated by rebel doctors and nurses. 
not because of her injuries, she was pleading with them to let her go to the Shelburne. More would die if she did not fulfil her duty. When she arrived at the medical centre, she tried fighting with the medics as they went to operate on her. They lay her on a large table and cut away the coat from her uniform. She stated herself she cried over this. Of course I cried over that. It was my uniform. I fought hard for it. They had to probe several times to get the bullets out. The nurse held her hand and told her to squeeze when it hurts. Margaret continued to cry, not because of the pain, but as she put it, my disappointment and not being able to bond the Shelburne was what made me unhappy. As she lay here, the rebel fight came to an end. The warship Helga had taken out the GPO and rebels lay dead across the city. The leaders were on their way to Clemenum Jail to face execution. Her friend Malin, who had led the charge of Stephen's Green amongst them. As her condition worsened, she was taken to St Vincent's Hospital, where she was arrested. The surgeon, however, stated to the authorities in Dublin Castle that she was in too poor a condition to be imprisoned. She spent her time recovering and it broke her heart at each announcement that another leader had been executed. She said herself about the executions. We had obeyed all the rules of war and surrendered as formally as any army ever captured. But that does not matter to them who make the rules. When well enough, she managed to get back to Scotland as she feared the authorities would come after her. The British soldiers were going house to house in Dublin looking for the woman who had killed so many of them with a rifle. While in Scotland, she continued to be involved in coming to man. In December 1916, a message came from Dublin that she was to be sent to America. She disguised herself as a man and boarded a ship. She spent the next few years touring America, rallying the Irish Americans to help fund the Irish cause. She raised much needed money to buy weapons and uniforms and return to Dublin. She got herself a job teaching in North Dublin. It wasn't her only role however. She also trained farmers, carpenters, students, solicitors and anyone else looking to fight for Ireland how to use a rifle. She was preparing a new generation of rebels to fight for Irish independence. She was captured during the war, leading a group of soldiers into Dublin through the Wicklow Mountains, and she spent the rest of the war in Mount Joy. When the war ended, she was released to a new Ireland, one where 26 counties were free for the first time in 800 years but one facing into a new battle, a battle amongst brothers, neighbours and friends. The Irish Civil War had begun. She sided with the anti-treaty army, seeing the conditions which Ireland was only partially free as an insult to those who had fought before them. As the pro-treaty side were aware of her influence, she was immediately arrested and again spent time in prison. After the war, those who fought for Irish freedom were entitled to a special pension from the government. Margaret's application was rejected as she was a woman. 
After the Civil War, she worked again as a teacher at Kings Inn Street Sisters of Charity until she retired in 1961. Before her retirement, in 1956, she was the president of the Irish National Teachers' Organisation, the INTO. She spent the rest of her life fighting for the rights of Irish women. She died on October 10th, 1971, and was buried in the Irish Rebel Cemetery in Glasnevin, right next to her friend, Constance Markovich. Today's music was written, performed and produced by Ryan O'Halloran. We the Irish is an Ireland Loves production. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us continue to create more, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash we the Irish. Ornus Anamdum, Gurmagut, Slonish. It's the big one. The Sky Half Price Sale is here. Choose from award-winning Sky TV and everything on Netflix. Or unmissable sports with every single live Premier League game on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports all half price. Take Sky Cinema and watch the biggest blockbusters. Or grab Sky Broadband Ultrafast for lightning fast speeds. Choose one that suits you. They're all half price for six months. Save big in the Sky Half Price Sale. Search Sky Half Price. Availability subject to location, TV and broadband products sold separately. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. Setup fees, min terms and further terms apply. Offer ends 2nd of September.